Hello and welcome to the first Animals and Internal Medicine podcast of 2022. I hope that everyone listening enjoyed a healthy, happy holiday season, despite the challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic continues to present. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'll be giving you a quick summary of new material published in Annals over the last two weeks. On December 28th, we published a nine-year cohort study that found that higher levels of sex hormone binding globulin, but not endogenous total testosterone concentrations, were associated with increased risk for cardiovascular events in men aged 40 to 69 years. You'll find the article on annals.org. Sex hormone binding globulin is the carrier protein for circulating testosterone, but few studies have attempted to determine if the level of sex hormone binding globulin independent of testosterone is associated with cardiovascular disease events. Researchers from the University of Western Australia studied data from the UK Biobank for 210,700 men aged 40 to 69 to analyze associations of serum total testosterone and sex hormone binding globulin with incident cardiovascular events. During the nine-year follow-up period, 8,790 men had a cardiovascular disease event. After fully adjusting for sociodemographic, lifestyle, and medical factors and for sex hormone binding globulin, The authors found that total testosterone levels were not associated with risk of any cardiovascular disease events. By contrast, after adjusting for all these factors and for total testosterone, they found that men with lower sex hormone binding globulin levels had an increased relative risk of myocardial infarction, but decreased relative risk of ischemic stroke and heart failure compared to men with higher levels. According to the authors, the findings indicate that in men of this age, total testosterone levels do not predict cardiovascular disease events, while sex hormone binding globulin levels could serve as a biomarker for cardiovascular disease risk. The next article is of particular interest in the Northern Hemisphere, as those of us in this part of the world are in influenza season. The article reports a cross-sectional study that found that between the years 2010 and 2019, Up to one-third of reproductive-aged women hospitalized with influenza were pregnant. Influenza A, H1N1, was also associated with a higher risk of adverse maternal outcomes, including intensive care unit admission and mortality, compared with influenza A, H3N2. However, fewer than one-third of hospitalized pregnant women included in the study were vaccinated against influenza. Pregnant women are a group with increased risk for influenza-associated hospitalizations, adverse maternal outcomes, and adverse fetal outcomes. However, comprehensive data on the characteristics and outcomes of pregnant women who are hospitalized with influenza in the U.S. are lacking. A research team from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention studied data from a CDC-sponsored network that conducts population-based surveillance for laboratory-confirmed influenza-associated hospitalizations during influenza season each year to describe characteristics and outcomes of hospitalized pregnant women with influenza. Of 9,652 women aged 15 to 44 years and hospitalized with influenza, 27.9% were pregnant. Among 2,690 hospitalized pregnant women included in this analysis, 62.3% were in their third trimester and 41.9% had at least one underlying medical condition. The data showed that 86.2% of hospitalized pregnant women had influenza A, 38% had A H1N1, and 61.7% had A H3N2. After the authors adjusted for influenza season, surveillance site, age, pregnancy trimester, and vaccination status, 
They found that pregnant women infected with H1N1 had almost twice the adjusted risk for severe maternal outcomes compared with those infected with H3N2. Although the analysis was not designed to assess vaccine effectiveness in adjusted analyses, those who were vaccinated had a significantly lower risk of severe maternal outcomes compared to those who were not vaccinated. Only 31.5% of women included in the study were vaccinated against influenza, and the proportion vaccinated was lower among non-Hispanic Black women, 19.3%, and women younger than 35 years, 29%. Pregnant women remain a high-priority target group for influenza vaccinations, and these findings highlight opportunities to improve influenza vaccine uptake among pregnant women in all trimesters. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Laura Riley writes, quote, The findings of this study confirm what has been shown in other smaller studies highlighting why pregnant women remain a critical population to focus on for vaccine-preventable diseases like influenza and SARS-CoV-2. Accurately estimating central venous pressure is an important component of the diagnosis and management of heart failure, but traditional examination techniques to determine central venous pressure are increasingly unreliable because of technical limitations in changing populations. In the study reported in the next article, researchers from the University of Utah School of Medicine studied a convenient sample of 100 patients undergoing right heart catheterization with both reduced and preserved ejection fraction to validate the accuracy of quantitative and qualitative point-of-care ultrasound assessment of jugular venous pressure in predicting elevated central venous pressure. For each of the participants, jugular venous pressure was estimated by handheld ultrasound, by traditional physical examination, and qualitative presence of a distended ultrasound jugular venous pressure in the upright position was done before invasive measurements of central venous pressure. The researchers found that quantitative and qualitative ultrasound jugular venous pressure accurately predicts elevated right atrial pressure. Additionally, visualization was possible in all 69 patients included in the study, whereas visualization using traditional examination was possible in only 42 of the 69 patients. According to the authors, these findings suggest that point-of-care ultrasound can enhance non-invasive assessment of central venous pressure. Next is a brief research report that found that opioid prescriptions declined significantly over the past decade, but morphine milligram equivalent per capita varied widely based on population and community characteristics. Researchers from Rand Corporation used national retail pharmacy records to examine changes in the total amount of opioid analgesics filled at retail pharmacies by patient, prescriber, and county characteristics over a 10-year period. They found substantial declines in the total amount of opioids being prescribed overall, but the data also revealed significant variations in opioid prescriptions in different populations and communities. Counties experiencing substantial decreases in per capita morphine milligram equivalent often were adjacent to counties with substantial per capita increases. These results suggest that the effects of clinician and policymaker efforts to reduce opioid prescribing may have differently affected different populations. The researchers also found variations in prescribing among clinicians. The greatest decrease in morphine milligram equivalent volume per practicing clinician was among adult primary care physicians and pain specialists. The only providers to see an increase in opioid prescribing were non-physician advanced practice providers, potentially reflecting the expanded scope of practice of these clinicians in many states. Moving to new material published on annals.org on January 4th. 
first is a cross-sectional multi-center study of patients with adrenal tumors that found that mild autonomous cortisol secretion predominantly affects women and is associated with increased frequency and severity of hypertension and type 2 diabetes compared to having non-functional adrenal tumors. Adrenal masses, including non-functioning adrenal tumors and steroid overproducing tumors, are found during approximately 5% of cross-sectional imaging studies, and mild autonomous cortisol secretion, previously called subclinical Cushing syndrome, is the most common hormonal abnormality in benign adrenal tumors. Mild autonomous cortisol secretion has been reported to be associated with type 2 diabetes and hypertension, but little was known about the precise extent of its association with cardiometabolic disease risk. Researchers from the University of Birmingham studied data from the European Network for the Study of Adrenal Tumors to determine cardiometabolic disease burden and steroid excretion in 1,305 persons with benign adrenal tumors with and without mild autonomous cortisol secretion. The data showed that many more women than men had mild autonomous cortisol secretion, and the prevalence of hypertension and diabetes were higher in patients with this condition. Diabetes in these patients more often required insulin therapy to achieve adequate glycemic control. Persons with mild autonomous cortisol secretion carried an increased cardiometabolic burden similar to that seen in Cushing syndrome, even if they did not display typical features of clinically overt cortisol excess. Based on these findings, the authors believe that patients diagnosed with adrenal tumors should have a cardiovascular risk assessment at the time of diagnosis with particular attention to blood pressure and glucose metabolism. Nearly 70% of the Medicaid-eligible population is enrolled in a Medicaid-managed care plan. Managed care plans are private health care plans that receive prospective per-enrollee per-month capitation payments from states and are then responsible for managing and paying for enrollees' health care. Capitation payments to plans are risk-adjusted, meaning that they differ to reflect differences in health care needs across patient populations. However, inadequate adjustment for patient risk can penalize plans and providers with unobservably high-risk patients, incentivize plans and providers to engage in risk selection strategies that are wasteful and undermine quality of care, and leads to public reporting initiatives to potentially misinform patients. The next article analyzed Louisiana Medicaid data to assess the degree to which risk-adjusted measures of health plan performance reflect differences in performance across health plans versus differences in patient characteristics. The authors examined data from 2013 and 2014, the period in which Louisiana Medicaid transitioned to Medicaid-managed care. The analyses focused on 137,933 eligible residents in the first reason to transition to Medicaid-managed care. Of those, 94,972 did not select a plan and were randomly assigned to one of five plans, creating a natural experiment. The remaining 42,961 chose among the same five plans. The authors compared each of the five plans' risk-adjusted performance between patients who selected the plan and those who were randomly assigned to it. The authors found that risk-adjusted measures of plan performance based on enrollees that chose plans differed substantially from estimates based on randomly assigned enrollees, with residual confounding only modestly reduced by risk adjustment. The authors suggest that the results should serve as a warning to policymakers who assume current risk adjustment is sufficient to measure the performance of plans or providers 
and the study discusses several implications of the findings for how payers and providers assess performance and deploy risk adjustment in public insurance programs. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Rachel Warner writes, quote, one take-home message from this research is that using observational data to evaluate performance is challenging, and not just for insurance plans, but for physicians, hospitals, medical therapies, and government policies. Randomization provides a gold standard approach for equalizing patient characteristics across treatment groups. Fortunately, randomization can be achieved not just through trials, but also through so-called natural experiments. Unfortunately, experiments, natural or otherwise, are rarely available to estimate healthcare performance measures. Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders comprise 7.7% of the U.S. population, and Asian Americans have had the fastest growth rate since 2010. Yet the National Institutes of Health has invested only 0.17% of its budget on health research focused on these ethnic groups between 1992 and 2018. Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders include over 40 ethnic subgroups that are highly diverse culturally, demographically, linguistically, and socioeconomically. However, data for these groups are often aggregated, masking critical health disparities and their drivers. To address these issues, in March 2021, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, in partnership with eight other NIH institutes, convened a multidisciplinary workshop to review current research, knowledge gaps, opportunities, barriers, and approaches for epidemiological and prevention research in these populations. A summary of the workshop is available on annals.org. Also new since the last podcast is a graphic medicine article and the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. The topic of this episode is bleeding risk during extended anticoagulation for unprovoked venous thromboembolism. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you will go to annals.org to explore this new material and also browse for interesting 2021 articles that you may have missed. I'm wishing everyone peace, joy, health, and hopefully the end of the pandemic as we enter 2022. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.